Three or four years ago, I had occasion to come into contact with a, an old friend. Uh, he was a man that I knew back in the 70s. We spent a great deal of time together, became, I think, closer than brothers. They say that if you can have five real friends in your lifetime, you've done pretty well. And if I were to enumerate five, he would have been in that five and maybe still would be in, that, in any case. But uh, he's gone Protestant since then, <clears throat> left the Church of God entirely, and has been doing some preaching as a deacon in a couple of different Protestant churches I know. But I was trying to discuss with him some of the things that are going on in the world about a new world order that's coming. And he said, you know, that might not be such a bad idea. We were talking about the United States losing its sovereignty <clears throat> and that they were behind the scenes developing a possibility of a new world order, a, a new currency that would be used everywhere. You know, I've done quite a bit of traveling in my life to many, many different countries, and it's always a problem trying to exchange the money and be sure you're getting your value, and then they take a certain amount of it to exchange it uh, as a fee. And then when you get done with the trip, you have some rands or some euros or some something left over, and uh, I have a little wad of currencies from around the world that don't amount to much uh, that I can't do anything with. They're just sitting there in an envelope, probably 10 or 15 different types of currencies. Uh, if we had one world currency, that problem would be solved. Anywhere you travel, the money would be good. Uh, you wouldn't have to go through all that stuff. Uh, and if you had one world government, wouldn't it be good that you didn't have all these conflicting governments and problems that we have? Uh, we wouldn't have nations warring against one another because there would be a central control. There would be a world court that would try things from all places and therefore you would have an even hand wherever you went. You'd know that you would be facing the same kind of, of system whether you were in China or Afghanistan or South America or wherever you might be that you would have the same type of judges, the same type of court, so you wouldn't worry. You know, I used to travel to Mexico once in a while, and we always heard stories about winding up in a Mexican jail. And there would be no appeal and no trial, and you'd just sit there and rot. That didn't appeal to me, and I tried to be fairly careful when I was across the border what I did uh, because of that. Well, other reasons too, but didn't want to be in a Mexican jail. But what if you could travel down there without fear of that and know that you would get the same kind of justice uh, even-handedly anywhere you went? So he made a pretty good point, I thought. And then about two days ago, I received a letter. It wasn't to me. It was addressed to one Dennis Morris, uh, and I didn't forward it. Didn't think it could do much good. In any case, Dennis had ordered a book, I guess, I don't know when, two or three years ago, and it was about this uh, 
way of being healed and your life being improved and things getting better. We have all kinds of fad books about living styles and diets and everything you name. There's thousands and thousands of them on the market that all have the answer to your problem. Anyway, this one appeared to be that. Because this fellow had had his picture taken with different presidents and he had hobnobbed with billionaires. And since Dennis had ordered this book, he said, I've been watching you, Dennis, pretty carefully over the last two or three years since you ordered my book. And I think that you should be included in the elite of the coming world. So it was an invitation to become one of the elite. And I thought, you know, if we're going to have a new world order, wouldn't it be neat to be elite? I don't want to be one of the peasants in a new world order that is to be introduced, do you? I would far prefer to be one of the elite. The downer about the whole thing is was addressed to Dennis only. And I hadn't ordered the book. But he called him by his name over and over and he dropped all kinds of names of these different billionaires that he had met with and, and all of these things that are going to come to pass and Dennis was invited to be one of them. Now, I don't know how he watched him so carefully over the last two or three years, but he claimed he had. <laughs> Total garbage. I guess. I don't know. But I really doubt that he's going to have much success with Dennis. Some have recently, over the last month or two or three or four, indicated that they were, I guess, somewhat frustrated or sort of tossed about, not knowing for sure what's going on because we seem to have a lull in the action right now in the church. Uh, it does appear things are about to fly apart in the world or as they would say, come together uh, their way. But right now it doesn't seem like there's much going on uh, in some respects. Now, I've even heard a few comments. I'm sure glad we got past that LeBaron situation, and we don't have to worry about that anymore. Now, in some respects, I agree emotionally with that thought, because there are some elements of the relationship there that, uh, let me say, are yet carnal and unconverted, and there are some very extreme difficulties in some personalities, I would say, uh, in that connection. So I understand your feeling, and I just assume not be involved either, any more than I absolutely have to be, and I've hardly seen them for several months now, and that's fine with me at this point. But let's not be fooled. I believe that the information we derive there is correct. I have not doubted that for one moment. It coincides with much of what we already understood 
and adds a little bit of another dimension to it, and I think a very important dimension to it, and I think that it will probably be borne out to be the case. I believe this is the promised land. That's why we have inherited it. I believe that Satan sent the Mormons here because he knew this was the promised land. So he sent some radical Protestants out here to be involved in it. And I will not be surprised to find out if they are kin to, in the past, some of the people who were here before who were antagonists and protagonists with Israel. Maybe they are a branch of Israel, I don't know for sure, but I've got a feeling there's some other blood coursing through some veins in Mormonism. And it's not my purpose to go into all that today, but to mention that I think we are here for a reason, and I think they were placed here for God's own reasons. Uh, They still think that the holiest land, as far as I understand, is still back in Illinois and Missouri and that they may go back there someday. And I have no objection to that whatsoever. Uh, Go when they're ready. But I do believe that the United States and this southwestern part of the United States is a very, very important part of God's plan. That is not shaken at all. But I want to remind you, I went over this some time ago, and I think that Perhaps we had some expectancy this spring of some big events happening, and maybe they didn't come down the way we had hoped. We didn't necessarily predict it, but we hoped. And I think that perhaps that hope was not far-fetched from this standpoint. That God made some warnings about a crash, some warnings about this nation being taken into captivity, And he put warnings in the Bible about people coming out ahead of that before the decree of destruction occurs there in Zephaniah 1 and 2. And I think that an opportunity was provided this spring for that to happen. But considering other scriptures, I'm not surprised that it didn't happen. Because God gives opportunity. Now, we have proclaimed over the airwaves, over the telephone, over the Internet now for years that this is coming down and that God has provided a way to escape. And it is not that we are unknown in the church of God. The whole church of God is aware of us. There have been articles about us in the journal. Now, we're not big and we're not in contact with them much, so... Perhaps we're overlooked, and yet, on the other hand, that message is there for any who want to heed it, or to examine it and then heed it, or not heed it. So it's not that it's been done in a corner. It was announced to the whole church in the journal that these idiots had moved out into the desert. But I think a warning had to be given. And then when I read Isaiah 32, where it talks about the careless women being stripped and staying that way until God brings back Zion or turns things around, or I think it puts it in that chapter, 
opens the windows of heaven in a miraculous way to bless his people. So I think warning was put out there, and I think this spring opportunity was there for people to heed and to separate from this world. And it didn't happen, not surprisingly. Now perhaps we anticipated too much that that would occur, and so maybe it left us somewhat frustrated and a little bit disjointed and wondering, well, what's next and why are we sitting here and nothing's happening? Maybe it's the lull before the storm. It does appear that events in this nation and the world are shaping up in such a way that there is serious trouble ahead. And probably fairly soon. Now, if these people did not heed a warning and an opportunity and have to go through a stripping away of their jobs, their finances, their homes, their freedoms, and a total change in our nation, then perhaps it will be time for some of them to wake up and to come and to build the temple of God. But it appears it's going to take that. And I've even suspected within the church, based on some things uh, that I have seen and observed, that even some in the church who might be part and parcel with us soon would not be for a while. God knows what He's doing. But need I remind you that I went over some information not too long ago, I think, where I showed different events that had occurred, knowledge that had come beginning in 94, 90, somewhere right in there, about this area. And in 96, with more information that began to come about the importance of it and, and the understanding of the minor prophets and thus the whole of the prophets. But it always seemed that from the time the information came until it was augmented or actually physically accomplished in some form or another, there was always a two and a half to three year time lag. And even in learning that we should come out here, for me, there was about that amount of time uh, for it to develop. So it's been that way now for about 15 years. Well, 17 years. And it's interesting that we first learned about the possibility of a true original Jerusalem being out in this part of the country, this part of the world. It's been about two and a half years since we learned that information. Now nothing truly has happened, has it, that changes anything. We did some digging, some excavating. We were pulled off of it because certain people got afraid that we might actually find something and got scared of the government and the Mormons and whatever. But I think we're very close to seeing some things that would prove this to be the case. Now, if the pattern continues, it would be about two and a half to three years from the time the knowledge came until something happened to forward 
the the fulfilling or the physical operation, you might say, of those things. And we've been about two and a half years. Time goes by so fast, it seems. This coming end of December 1st of January will mark three years since this information was first brought to us. So it might be that we're not too far from seeing something come to light as it has according to the pattern of the last 17 years. Don't be surprised. I'm not predicting it. That's a, that's a rough figure, two and a half to three years. Could be a little more, could be a little less uh, when events happen, but that's roughly about what it's been in the past. My experience with this knowledge and the knowledge and understanding God has given us. But it seems that was kind of cut off. Maybe God had his reasons for that. We'll explore that a little bit today. And what we need to be doing in the meantime. Because when there's a break in the action, no matter what you're doing, sometimes there's frustration or uncertainty or not knowing exactly what to look for or what to do. Even in battle, in war, there are always lulls in the action. There's a time where people stop fighting for a while. Even in the Civil War, I've read accounts of where when Christmas came, they would all quit fighting, they would lay down their arms, and if you had the Union and the Confederate troops across from each other, had their foxholes lined up, had been shooting at each other on the 24th, on the 25th, they laid down their guns, came out of their foxholes, and met in no man's land in the middle, and smoked cigarettes, and talked about old times, and visited with one another. And when Christmas was over, they would go back to their foxholes and start shooting at each other again. There are stories of that in many different wars, that type of thing. So even when people are out trying to kill each other, there are lulls in the action. And what do armies do when those occur? They resupply their food, they resupply their ammunition, they clean their guns, they sharpen their bayonets, they dig their foxhole out a little better, uh, they sleep, get some rest to be ready for the next action that's coming. <coughs> in other words, they use that time in preparation. I think there's something for us to learn there something to consider, that there are times when everything's not hot and heavy, and you know, sometimes it's kind of nice to catch your breath and look around and say, huh, a chance to recuperate before things get worse again, and the battle is only beginning. We have much ahead of us. I've had kind of a strange 24 hours Yesterday, someone was telling me that there's been a movie sort of circulating about the property here, a Protestant movie about someone saving their marriage and so on, and very syrupy Protestant approach, and they all wound up at the cross at the end of it, uh, not, not God the Father, not to Christ, but to the cross, and I don't, I haven't seen it, so I can't comment too much beyond that, just what I've heard. I had a dream 
just as I was waking up this morning, and I don't know that it had any significance, uh, my wife did introduce some new salsa yesterday she had made yesterday afternoon, so who knows. Uh, at any rate, uh, it was kind of a strange dream, and it almost was like a warning, or a forewarning, or, you know, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. I won't go into the details of it. I don't think it means may mean anything, and yet it, to me it just puts a, a question mark there for things to watch for. But then, about an hour and a half before services were to start, I got a call from the East Coast. And it was from a lady that I had met when we were in Church of the Great God. Uh, these people had come out of worldwide, and they were doing their prayer circles and things up in Virginia and West Virginia, and uh, they did have some trouble. Some demons got into their prayer circle, and they were doing this under the auspices of the Worldwide Church of God and the Tkachas, and there were people running down the street screaming. It was that bad. The demons had been that forceful. Uh, they got in touch, and uh, in being in the CGG office, they called there, and I talked with one of the ladies and uh, decided to go up to Virginia and visit with them. I got there, and it was obvious there were about, I, I guess there were 10 or 12 people that met there with me, including children and the adults and everything. But we got together and began discussing what had happened, and it was very clear to me that the demons had gotten involved with them and had really disrupted things, and people were saying things and acting really strange and funny. And I even felt a demon presence there in the meeting. Well, before it was done, we knelt down, and I offered a prayer to God and rebuked the demons in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And they left. Now, I don't think the name Jesus Christ is an ungodly term. I have seen it used to cast out demons. I've seen it used for people to be healed. Uh, some form of it, whether it's Yahshua or Joshua or whatever, uh, that is what he, Christ sa or God said that Jesus would be called there in Matthew. But they will later call him Emmanuel. There are some who think that the name Jesus Christ is pagan. I have seen it used to great good. I think Emmanuel at this point is an upgrade over that because it means God with us. And I think that we are in those end time people that Matthew was referring to in saying that we would use Emmanuel at the end. And we certainly want God with us as we enter into these trying times that are coming over the world. This lady and her family eventually moved down to South Carolina, became part of the Church of the Great God, as did a few of the other relatives who were involved there. But she called me this morning. I hadn't heard from her in, what, ten years? Or about that. And uh, is getting involved with, partly involved with one of the churches of God, but also with someone else who claims to be part of the Church of God, who a name I did not recognize, but she said he keeps the Sabbath and the Holy Days, so maybe 
He just wasn't a minister in the church back then. Uh, she said he'd been around for 50 years, and I'd never heard the name, so I don't know what the situation is, but she began telling me some of the things he believes. And it sounded to me like he's hooked some demons too. So I warned her to be very, very careful just on the surface of what she was saying. But she called me because she didn't know who else to call. And God had answered back there in Virginia. And she remembered that, so she called and wanted to visit. I don't know where it will lead. But Protestantism is demonic. We need to understand that. It's not like witchcraft or the occult, which are readily observable to be satanic and demonic. But Protestantism is a religion of Satan, the devil. And we need to grasp that. Now, I know that on the Internet there are those who are Protestants who have a fairly good handle of what's going on in the world and of this new world order that is coming. And I read some of their articles some of the time uh, about that. When they start getting into their religion, I just skim on over that or start preaching or telling us to be saved and accept the Lord Jesus and all that stuff. Stay away from it. So I'm not going to say here that we're going to have a restricted looking list or reading list. I'm only saying be very, very, very careful. It is by means of Protestantism that the Tkachas led over half the church away from God. And these people in Virginia at that time we're still part of Worldwide Church of God, and we're doing what the Tkachas were promoting, and the demons took over. So let's be very, very aware, brethren. Let's be very careful. You know, Protestantism is, Protestantism is one of those religions of Satan, like Taoism or Hinduism or... Shintoism or Catholicism or anything else. It's like those, and the underlying doctrines are very much the same. The window dressing is different, but the underlying doctrines are the same. Reincarnation and heaven and hell and all the immortality of the soul and all those things. But Protestantism has a decided Israelite twist. Satan knew he needed to design religions that would appeal to Israelites. Now, Shintoism and Taoism and those things appeal to the Gentiles of Asia. But Protestantism and Catholicism, to a degree, have appealed to Israelites. So they are Satan's means, his specific tool, to capture the minds and emotions of Israelites. And therefore, we must be doubly careful with Protestantism because Satan's demons do appear as angels of light, do appear as bringing truth. So I'm just issuing 
a warning to be very, very careful with what you watch. Someone asked me about one type of movie, if it'd be okay to watch it on the Sabbath, have some people over. I said, absolutely not. The Sabbath is set aside for God, not for Protestantism or Amishism or anything else. You know, some of you have been reading things that the Amish have written or written things about the Amish. Well, I think there's something perhaps to be gained there because they do still have a simple type of life without electricity and without a lot of the modern so-called conveniences that we think we enjoy. And to see how they do that, I think, can be a revelation. And I think that it can help us... uh, depart from the ways of this society and culture that's been developed. But there again, be very careful. Because those people do not worship the true God, and they have Protestantism and Sunday worship, and on and on and on it goes. Heaven and hell. And we were watching one on National Geographic or something about the Amish not long ago, and there are probably different divisions of... of, uh, the Amish and the Mennonites and so on. Uh, And they may have different practices from community to community. But in this one, they were showing the difficulty they're having with their young people and whether they would remain Amish or go out in the world. And they've adopted this approach. When a girl turns 16 on her birthday, she is allowed to date... And she can bring her date home in her father's house and she can take him in her bedroom and they can spend the night there and they can do anything they choose to do. That's at least one sect of the Amish. And they let them choose from age 16 then how they will live Some of them choose to go out in the world. Some of them choose to become part of the Amish church and get away from that kind of conduct. Some go out and they come back when they're 26, 28, 30 or older and then become part of the church after they've sown their wild oats. I'm not sure that that's what you would want your children to be reading or watching. I, as a father with daughters, would have trouble going in my room with my 16-year-old daughter going in some other room with some guy I didn't know. There could possibly even have been homicide under those circumstances under my roof. Certainly a little bit of blood and some bludgeoning of one kind or another. All I can say is be careful. I'm not saying you should never watch or read something about the Amish and the things they do. But be careful. Because all is not good. All is not well. And we need to be real careful right now, I think, about getting involved in the Protestant world in any form or fashion. Because it is a world that is going away. And it is a form of paganism. There's there's another danger that... A lot of people in the church have not heeded, and I've mentioned it before. 
that with the confusion and the lull and the action so what, somewhat, you see, there were, we had lots of action when Herbert Armstrong was alive, didn't we? We had booklets and magazines and TV programs and radio broadcasts and people flying all over the world meeting with kings and rulers and youth clubs and all kinds of things going on that did not have the degree of godliness in them that he wished. And he blew it all apart. And there's been a lull in the action now since he died in 86, hasn't there? There hasn't been much accomplished, and you have a few churches out there trying to redo his work or finish it or whatever. But it isn't something that we're all drawn to. It isn't something exciting. There's not much really happening. And there are some frustration levels among the people that are involved in those organizations. And they keep changing organizations because there's an emptiness there. Now, if we have a little lull of a few months, are we going to fly apart? Are we going to get discouraged? What are we going to do? Those things do happen. And sometimes you don't know exactly what God is, has in mind or what He's doing. But I think there's something to learn from physical warfare and what we should be doing. Now, Paul used that analogy, and we covered it in Ephesians 5. I want to go back there and revisit that for a few minutes, because I think it would help us get perspective <coughs> on what we need to be doing at a time when we're not sure exactly what God is going to do next or how He's going to go about it. Oh, what am I looking for here? Chapter 6. <coughs> He's telling us in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the eternal. As a parting shot, be strong in the eternal and in the power of His might. Let those words sink in. We don't need to be strong in Mormonism. We don't need to be strong in Methodism or Catholicism, or Protestantism of any kind. We need to be strong in God. His words are the ones that were given for instruction and in righteousness, for correction. His words are God-breathed, not some Protestant preachers. Be very, very careful where you go and what you hear and see. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He is very subtle. He has many ways of distracting us and attracting us. And he can do it and appear as an angel of light. Oh, that looks so good. That was so good. I certainly enjoyed that. But you know, they don't make those things without putting a twist in them. And it's the twist that can twist you up. Did you see? Did you grasp how easily, how absolutely easily, the Tkachas took half the church or more into Protestantism? 
It was like he just snapped his fingers and said, this is the way to go. Oh, okay. <laughs> I still have trouble grasping and believing what I saw with my very own eyes in Anchorage, Alaska, when they had all the churches in Alaska get together and have a meeting and preach a sermon about how it was okay to keep the Sabbath from 6 to 6 instead of sundown to sundown, as the Bible clearly says. And how almost everyone in that congregation of roughly probably four to 500 people, almost every man, woman, and child accepted that. I only know of three or four families who did not. Maybe there were five or six or seven, a few I didn't know about. And I've told you, the man in front of me got up after the sermon and says, Boy, that makes my life easier. Just like that. Drop the Sabbath. That was the beginning salvo. And once they saw that work so easily and so almost completely, they started making moves to change it back to Sunday and got her done. And it was almost like falling off a log. It was so easy. Satan's capacity to deceive and to take you away is very powerful and so very subtle. And he's wily, says the wiles of the devil. It is going to be so bad that he will deceive the whole world with the exception of a very few of the very elect. See how prevailing, how powerful, how persuasive he is? Think about that. And then be very, very careful at what you choose to watch. Realizing that it can be 90% Good stuff. But it can so easily, with one or two or five or ten percent, lead you in a wrong way of thinking. And sometimes we're so emotional that if it has love and compassion, that we can be sucked in with emotion instead of logic and correct thinking. Emotion is a very powerful tool that Satan uses. Probably one of, maybe even the most powerful tool he can use is emotion. People quit thinking with their heads and start thinking with their emotions and they're in trouble. And that is the primary tenet of Protestantism is gooey emotion and love. It's not godly love based on his commandments. It's gooey feeling. So when they start getting gooey, your red flag better go up. That's what he uses. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, demonic principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, 
against spiritual wickedness in high places. Satan was one of the anointed cherubs that covered the very throne of God. He still has access to the throne of God to this very day and goes there and accuses you and me daily of sin. Particularly those of us who are in the church. Particularly. They're the ones he, he has the greatest war against. And it chagrins me a great deal that I give him ammunition to take to the throne of God. You see what Daryl thought or said or did? God says, well, yeah, I can't deny it. <laughs> I saw it too. Thankfully, he has the blood of Emmanuel to cover him. Or he'd be yours. There is great power in Satan. I have seen it evidenced. And we're going to see it evidenced in ways that we have never before seen. And what I have seen in my lifetime has scared me spitless in having to deal with demon forces from time to time. It is not pleasant. Sometimes it's obvious. Anybody would see it and recognize it. Sometimes it's very subtle and very hard to perceive. But let's be aware of what we're fighting. Wherefore, take to you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And we're entering the evil day now. And having done all, to stand. Not wilt, not fall down, not sit down, not lay down, not get in the fetal position and say, Oh, woe is me. But to stand. Now what do those soldiers do when there is a lull in the fighting? They prepare. They get ready for the next round. And if things are in a bit of a lull right now, it's no time to dither about doing nothing. It's time to get ready for what is to come. And here's what he says. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. The truth of the living God is found in this book. We need to be immersed in these words, in this book. We need to read it regularly. We need to study it carefully. We need to apply it in our lives. Because the truth of God is the difference between what Satan gives us and what God has for us. Did you notice in the account of Christ and the temptation Satan put on him how Satan used Scripture? And it was mostly correct. And a lot of people would have been sucked into it because he quoted the Bible. That's what the Bible says. But he put a little bit of a twist on it that would have done Christ in. That would have defeated him and Satan would have become the eternal ruler of the earth. Because there would have been no salvation. And then he would have destroyed us all and it had all been over. Just a little subtle twist is all it would have taken. But Christ saw through that. And he saw how the Scripture was being twisted a little bit and quoted another Scripture to put the right balance on it. 
anyone. That's how careful he is. He had to be careful with Christ, didn't he? And he was. Used nothing but Scripture. And having on the breastplate of righteousness. You know, a breastplate, when you're speaking of physical armor for physical war, protects your heart, your lungs, your liver, your trunk, vital organs that you can't live without. And God equates this in this analogy to a breastplate or armor of righteousness over your vital organs. So righteousness will protect you. But what if we have areas of unrighteousness in our lives? What if there's a weak spot in the armor right over your heart, right over one of your lungs? What if there's a weak spot over your liver and an arrow goes in there? What if you're essentially righteous, but you have some very weak areas? And do you know, Satan knows those areas. He can see you. He sees your thoughts and actions like God does. He knows where you're weak. Do you think he's going to hit you in that part of your character where you're strong? Where the breastplate of righteousness is thick? Or is he going to hit you in a weak place? I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to figure that out. So we need to be sure that our breastplate of righteousness doesn't have big holes in it. Now, we've been doing a series on who, what, why, where, when, and how are we. And using Revelation 2 and 3 as the basis. And I think I'll make this the conclusion of that if I get done today. But in there, God analyzes the seven churches, doesn't He? He points out strengths and He points out weaknesses. And it's then for us to examine very closely what Christ says to the seven churches and analyze where our strong areas are so that we might have hope and confidence, but also to recognize our weak areas and our sins so that we might overcome them and fulfill our purpose on this earth. Now, why would he analyze the churches and then have John write that analysis out for us if it wasn't really meant to be studied and carefully checked out so that we might ourselves see exactly what Christ thinks of the seven churches at the end and of what he sees in them? Strengths and weaknesses. He wants us to use that section of Scripture to carefully analyze ourselves and see what we need to change to overcome, where we need to have a stronger level of righteousness, His righteousness. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Wherever we walk, it should be in the direction of peace. The peace of God. That peace is brought about by the indwelling of His Holy Spirit and of the elements of Matthew 5 where He gives blessed are the peacemakers and so on. Be sure you're walking in a way that will achieve peace among ourselves here 
and peace with God. You know, we say and do things around here with each other sometimes that don't lead to peace. They lead to conflict or strife or hurt feelings or whatever. Sometimes we wear our feelings on our sleeves or shoulders where they're easily hurt and shouldn't do that. But then on the other hand, we need to be very careful not to cause offense. No one's supposed to take offense. And some people say, well, you're not supposed to take offense. It'll make any difference what I say to you. You can't take offense anyway. That's a wrong attitude. We need to be careful not to give it. We need to be careful not to take it. Walk in the way of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith. The shield is what you hold right out in front. We need faith in God. Sometimes we have trouble walking in faith. Trusting Him. That He will take care of our needs. Sometimes we have our own solutions or the world's solutions to our problems, whatever they may be. Those are not solutions. Trust God. I think He's giving us knowledge and understanding. But sometimes it's hard to walk there trusting Him that you're doing the right thing and that He will see you through it. Yeah, but what if? What if I get hurt? What if I get sick? What if I die? Well, so what? We're His. Whether we live or die. Whether we breathe or don't breathe. He says we are His. We committed ourselves to Him when we were baptized and had the laying on of hands. So we need to turn our life over to Him. Utterly. And do everything He says. And if it leads to our death, so what? Fear Him who is able to kill the body and the soul, not just the body. This physical body means very little. We're all appointed once to die, dust to dust and ashes to ashes. What difference does it make when? If your life is turned over completely to God and you trust Him in every aspect of your life, then He will do what is best for you in the long run. <clears throat> he wants you in His kingdom. <coughs> you know when I'm dead... I don't know it. There is no time. There is no thought. Split second later, you're in the resurrection. What's wrong with that? Am I going to trust my life to the wealth doctors of this society that's about to crash? Am I going to trust it to the health doctors of the society who 75% of themselves say they wouldn't take chemo or radiation if they had cancer? And a poll of them, they see what it does. Why would I take this world's solutions when I can go to God in faith and prayer if I just simply believe He exists and believe He has my best interests in mind? 
then it's up to Him whether physically I live or die and up to Him whether I'm in the kingdom of God forever. Faith is not easy to walk by. It's very difficult. I'll show you my faith by my works, Paul says. I'll trust God for healing, but I'll also take care of my body. And eat what I should eat and not eat what I shouldn't eat. Very difficult in this world today. Let's leave that there. Take the shield of faith. That's what stops the arrows and the spears. Wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Take the helmet of salvation. There's the part of your body that probably needs the most protection, your head. Hard as it may be, it can still be penetrated. The helmet of salvation. Salvation should be in our head. Salvation should be our continual thought getting beyond this world and into the kingdom of God should be our goal and our purpose in the main direction of our head. So we need the helmet of salvation. The process of thought that leads to salvation is what protects your head. The people perish because of lack of a knowledge or vision is the word Hosea uses. For lack of vision, the people perish. We need vision to see ahead of what God has for us and to go there. We need to keep that constantly in our mind. Otherwise, we'll get distracted. So that helmet of salvation means that your head is protected by the concept of salvation and heading in that direction. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Word of God cuts both ways. You can't have a better sword than this. This is our sword. Know it. Understand it. Learn to use it. You know, a man can have a sword, physical sword, and go into a battle, but if he hasn't been trained in how to use it, he's going to get stuck fast. It takes many, many hours, weeks, months, years of training with a sword to get to the point you can wield it in such a way that you can stick him instead of him sticking you. And the Word of God is the same way. There's a lot of words here. And it takes a lot of practice, a lot of thought, a lot of study, a lot of meditation, a lot of prayer to come to be able to use the Word of God in such a way that it will protect you from Satan the devil and the world around you. There's the reason for Bible study. Not just so you can appear righteous by studying 30 minutes a day, but to be sure you can use and wield these words in your life in such a way that it protects you from Satan, the devil. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So we're in this together. We have to take on the proper armor of God to be able to stand against what's coming. Now, what a better time to use for that than a time when God doesn't have us real busy physically with whatever it is He has in mind to do. 
there's a lull in the action. It's not a time to just sit back and get frustrated and discouraged. It's a time to look at what's ahead. Now, at the beginning of this, I said there is a new world coming, a new world order coming. And people that I've known are saying that might not be so bad after all. Maybe that's something we should accept. And the sovereignty of the U.S. go away, our borders disappear, and we become part of one whole world government where everybody is there. And then you have elements of it where different ones who are involved in it want to invite you to be one of the elite. And if there's a new world order coming on this world, that's what I'd want to be. Man, put me up there with those billionaires. Put me up there with the yachts and all the goodies. Uh, I, I could go for that. I'd much rather do that than be making transistors in a factory somewhere for a nickel an hour or a bowl of rice. I'd rather be among the elite. Let's go to Matthew 5. Here we have an example prayer, a model prayer. Oh, wait a minute. That's not where I'm looking for. Where is it? Where is the prayer? Seems like it'll be about seven. I'll find the verse here in a minute. Six, nine? Okay. Man, you ought to be able to at least find it. After this manner, therefore, pray you, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. So the model prayer that he gives here is an, is an outline. It's not something we need to repeat word for word by rote, but to begin a prayer to God, <clears throat> it helps us if we consider Him and His name and hallow Him, think about how He's created the universe and the beauty of it and this world and the things that are in it. You say, well, I can't see God. Yes, you can. Romans 1 says you can see Him by the things that He has created. A tree, a bird, a star, the sun, your body. You can see the things He's made and see what an incredible thing He has done. And you can see God in that. So, we hallow God's name. We give Him honor and glory and praise at the beginning of a prayer. And then we get into the body of it. Your kingdom come. Once you address God and address His holiness, His majesty, His power, His might, His heat, then you have first on your lips, Your kingdom come. The new world order has a kingdom that they are going to introduce. It is a kingdom of Satan the devil. He is going to introduce a new world order, a new world government. He is going to take us back to Babel, modern Babylon, where all the races were amalgamated. They all spoke the same language. 
They all had the same religion. They were going to build a tower to heaven and overcome and defeat God. And Satan would be the ruler of the world. That's what he had in mind then. And God scattered them, gave them different languages so they couldn't understand each other, and separated the peoples of the earth so that that could not occur. Now, over a period of thousands of years, Satan has worked things behind the scenes, worked with human beings, ones who had attitudes that he could work with. He understood the absolute hatred that Esau had for Jacob. And now he has people in the highest places in Washington and New York and in London, the very highest places, who are at his beck and call to destroy Jacob. And they are in the process of doing this today. And you're going to begin to see more and more of the results of it over the next weeks and months. And it may not even stretch into years before it's done. be very interesting to see. Even this next week, our president has said that he is going to finish his second hundred days of work in 72 days and then rest. The 72nd day will be July 10th. 11th is the day, Sabbath, next Sabbath, that he says he'll rest. What on earth is he talking about? That is weird and strange sounding. It's documented that he said it. I didn't hear it. I don't know. Maybe it's rumor to some degree. But if he said it, it's weird. And he must have something in mind. What? Why would you shorten 100, year, 100 days down to 72 days and then say, like God, I will rest from my work? I don't know. I'd be aware, though. Maybe it means nothing. Maybe he's talking through the top of his hat. Or maybe he didn't say it at all. Maybe it was falsely reported. I don't know. But I know there's some strange things going on. They have a new world order ready for us. That's not the new world order I want to be part of. They can have their one world government, but it's going to be of iron and miry clay, and it won't last long. It'll all come apart because of greed, jealousy, and envy among them. And because Satan's, it'll be Satan's house, and a house divided against itself cannot stand. So they can offer you to be part of the elite, it's not going to last. It's not going to happen. Thy kingdom come. Now, we see Satan's kingdom coming upon us very rapidly now. And it will be followed very shortly by the kingdom of God. Your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Do you know that things are in order in heaven? That everything is done according to the will and the way and the purpose of God and that there is peace there? except for Satan going before the throne of God still, accusing you and me. That's going to be cut off shortly. He'll be cast back down to the earth and no longer allowed to go there, because God is more powerful than Satan. And he will cut him off and kick him back down here. And Revelation 12 says the first thing he's going to do is come after you and me. Isn't that comforting? 
Had we best go to Ephesians 5 and read about the armor of God to protect us from the wiles of the devil and pray that we be accounted worthy to escape these things that are about to come? Because the new world order of the world and Satan is coming before the new world order of God. And we have to face it and deal with it. Now we want the new world order of Christ. And we're supposed to pray for that regularly. That His will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And it's not being done now. He's allowed Satan to be the prince of the power of the air and the present ruler of this world. And he is ruling it very effectively for evil. Let's go back to Revelation 2 again briefly, and 3. Because Christ tells us how we can become a part of the new world order, the one that counts and the one that will last. Chapter 2, he writes to Ephesus, says what he has to say, good and bad, about it. And he says, He that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He's going to reestablish Eden in the kingdom of God, and maybe a small microcosm of it here at the end as an example to the world. But he's talking about the one in the paradise of God, the eternal one here, eternal life. Then he goes down to Smyrna at the end of that, after he says whatever good and bad he says. Verse 11, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. We do not have to fear eternal death. We'll be a part of the kingdom of God and live forever, eternally. What a promise. What an opportunity. Man spends a lot of scientific research and effort and money and energy in trying to figure out a way to make us live a little longer or to have stem cell research and figure out how to make new organs to poke in us so that we'll live longer physically on this earth. God offers something so much better. Eternal life without having to have yourself cut open and new organs put in every so often. To Pergamos, down at the end of that, he said, verse 17, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna. <coughs> manna was the food of God sent to save Israel's life. And I think that there's a type here. But God will give us those things necessary to give us eternal life and to succor us, to make us feel, not succor, but S-U-C-C-O-R, to feed us, to give us what we need for life. And will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knowing saves he that receives it. If we overcome, grow, change, he's going to give us a holy, righteous name. He's going to give us a white stone with that imprinted in it. And no one will see it but you. I'm sure we'll share at some point, but it's going to be special and personal. Thyatira, here's someone who had some problems. Let's see what he says at the end of that. If we will overcome. Is this lull time, a time to be overcoming, growing, and changing, and preparing 
for what is about to break over us, what's about to break over the world? Wouldn't you want to be as ready as possible? If you were in a physical war again, and you knew that those guys were resupplying their ammunition, they were eating, they were taking a nap, they were getting rested and ready, and that pretty soon they're going to come over out of their foxholes or behind the hill, and they're going to come screaming down the hillside, shooting everything they have, trying to kill you. Would you not want to be prepared? Would you not want to be sure your helmet was not only on, but buckled? Your seat belt if you had one. You would want to be sure your gun was absolutely, completely chock full of ammunition. You'd want to be sure your bayonet point was sharp. You'd want to be sure that your metal vest plate was on and buckled tight. Because they're coming screaming down the hill to kill you in any way possible. You'd want to be ready and alert. Well, it's about to happen. Now is the time to be getting ready spiritually. Take advantage of a moment, a time, when we're not having to dig holes or look for something. A time when we're not building a village because we already have. Yeah, we've still got some things to do. We've got to make compliance with some things that the county says. So it does take some of our time and our energy and our finances. But it's a time when we're not so busy that we don't have time to sharpen our spiritual skills and get ready for Satan and his demons to come after us because they're going to. And they'll use men to do it. Not just mind control. It's a time to heed these words of our Savior and be overcoming and growing so that these promises can be given to us. I don't want to be overlooked. I don't want Him to give them to someone else and not me. I want Him to give them to someone else, but I want Him to give them to me too. And you too. I don't want any of us left out, left behind. Verse 25, But that which you have already hold fast till I come, and he that overcomes and keeps my words to the end, not to the point that he gets frustrated or discouraged or begins to sin and drifts away. He keeps my words to the very end. Blessed is he who comes to the 1335. To the end. To him will I give power over the nations. Now there's some elitist talk, isn't it? To him who overcomes, who changes... Will I give power over the nations? We rule the day when these leaders of the nations today rule over us. He has promised us that we will be elite if we overcome and given power over the nations. He'll give us what all those conspiratists want. Rule of the earth. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. 
We will give power over, be given power over the nations and a rod of iron to enforce it. To enforce peace. That's an incredible amount of power, isn't it? That's what those guys out there today are planning. But they're, they're having problems because they don't have the power they need. And they've been afraid to push their agenda until they had enough power to pull it off. <coughs> well, I believe they think they have enough power now. And the die is cast. They're not in the shadows anymore. They're right out in the open, accomplishing it before our very eyes. Our nation has turned fascist. We're living under communism now. It hasn't reached everybody in the fullest extent yet, but it's reached General Motors and the banks and various other places. They've taken over. And it will continue until it is completely taken over. It's not a conspiracy theory anymore. It is something that is happening daily before our very eyes. They are taking the power to rule the world. And they will for a short time. He is offering us power forevermore. He's offering us elitism. And in a way that will actually work instead of just blowing smoke in our ear like that guy was with Dennis. I will give him the morning star. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To Sardis, he says, He that overcomes, verse 5 of chapter 3, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, righteousness, not dirty clothes. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, leave him in the eternal book. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. If I will just overcome, if you will just overcome your attitudes, your mindsets, God is, Christ himself is going to offer your name to his Father to be one of the elite rulers of the world. That is only being offered to a very few people, percentage-wise on this earth, a very few it's being offered to every one of you sitting here in this room. That's incredible. We're going to take advantage of that? All you have to do is change some attitudes and actions. How hard is that? Pretty hard. <laughs> Frankly, it just is. But we've got to get her done. <coughs> Philadelphia goes down. Verse 11. Chapter 3, Behold, I come quickly, hold that fast which you have. Him that overcomes, verse 12, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar in the temple is right close to the Father and the Son. It's what helps support the temple of God. And he shall go no more out. He'll be there forevermore. I will write upon him the name of God family name of God and the name of the city of my God which is New Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God he's already written it on us he says in Hebrews 12 the church of God has the name of Jerusalem and Zion so he speaks of those things that were not as if they already were it's something that in his mind is accomplished 
Now, we're not born again already, and we're not already in the kingdom of God. If this is the kingdom of God, I don't want any part of it. Thank you. We have access to, we have input from, we have opportunity to forever be in the kingdom of God, and we have come in contact with God, who is the ruler of that kingdom. It is not yet ushered in. The new world order of Satan has to come first before we're resurrected and changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, enter into the kingdom of God, and become truly the new Jerusalem, coming down with God, from God, out of heaven. Yes, the kingdom of God has come upon us in the form of His Holy Spirit. But we are born of flesh. When we're born of spirit, we'll be spirit. And not until. And then even the Laodicea, who got spewed, and we got spewed, this applies to us. Verse 21, to him that overcomes, even in Laodicea, the worst of the worst, that which was tepid, not hot or cold, got spit out. Even then, to him that overcomes, that's the key factor here, is changing being different, coming out of this world and turning to God with our whole heart. That's the bottom line. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, right at the throne of God. His throne right now is full of rainbows and lightning and thunder and singing and hosannas and hallelujah to God with people that can carry a tune in a sea of glass full of light and color and beauty. Somebody sent me something recently of pictures of the Hubble telescope had made of different places out in the universe. Just incredible color and beauty. Better than LSD. No, I haven't been there, but just incredible beauty that God has made. To be at the very throne of God, what more could anyone ask? Sit down with his Father and him in his throne. Let's go to Revelation 5 and verse 10. And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. We will rule over the earth. If we are faithful, grow, and overcome, we'll sit down on the throne of God with Him and rule over the entire earth. Now, how elite can you get? You'll hobnob with the Father and the Son, with the two rulers of the universe. Be right there with them. Be the wife of one. You know, husband and wife are pretty close. They get in bed at night and put their arms around each other and hug each other and sometimes lay next to each other front to front or back to back all night long. It is a physical 
relationship that points to a spiritual relationship of extreme closeness with the Father and the Son. It's the closest thing we can even begin to use to imagine what it would be like to be the bride of Christ. And physical marriage has its failings and its bleak moments and its discouragements and frustrations, even in the best of marriages, because we as human beings fall short of being God by far. But at least there's a type there, and the, and the good parts of marriage and the good parts of a relationship are those things which we need to look to and say, here's something that points to the kingdom of God. All right, let's go to Revelation 21. We have people who are promising us a new world order. They're promising us peace and wealth and health. They're promising us one religion that will be a universal good religion. They're promising us, promising us things that they simply cannot deliver. And what little of it they do deliver will be short-lived of iron and miry clay and disappear rather quickly because all the peace that they promise does not allow for human nature. Lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, and all those things. And human beings will still have it. And the leaders will certainly have those qualities, if you can call them qualities. Let's go to Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, a whole new order of things. The first heaven and the first earth were passed away. Now the earth is still going to be here, but the ways of this world, and Satan the devil is going to be chained and bound. There was no more sea. If you go back to Ezekiel, we've seen before, you can show that that means the salt water will be gone. It will all be fresh. doesn't mean there won't be any water out there but it won't be salt water. It'll be fresh. There'll be rivers coming out from under the throne of God which will cause the earth to become fresh water. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Didn't he say, we just read there in Revelation 2 and 3, how we would be called the New Jerusalem, the city of God? I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, will be New Jerusalem, will be the bride of Christ. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. We'll live with Him, Emmanuel, God with us. And He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. And there'll be no fears and no tears. Can you imagine that? It's beyond comprehension. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. A lot of us are living with very difficult things in our lives right now that are contained right there in that verse. From time to time we cry, don't we? 
we're so upset and frustrated and miserable for whatever reasons at the moment that we break down and cry. No more tears. No more death. Some of us are on the verge of death, aren't we? (laughs) We're getting old. We're getting decrepit. We're getting sick. We're at the edge of physical death. He's talking about a time when we won't come near it anymore. And no one will die. Now he's talking about the bride of Christ here. There will still be death in the millennium of physical people, but not with us. Neither sorrow. Can you imagine a world in which you never have any sorrow? I don't know that a day goes by that I don't have some kind of or form or emotion of sorrow come across my mind. Something I'm sad about, something I'm frustrated with. Do you ever have a day of total sunshine with no frustration or sorrow, whatever? If you do, you're in la-la land of some kind. I don't know what you're taking. Nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. Some of us are in chronic pain. Never without pain. My wife's in that category. She is always in pain. Unless she's deep asleep, doesn't feel it. She wakes up, it's there. Some of you are in the same boat. I just mention that because it's so very close to me and I see the suffering day by day by day. The pain and the agony and the frustration that comes with it. Now maybe we have to go through that now so that we will overcome and change and grow. And then we'll enter that time when there is no more pain. And maybe the pain and the sorrow and the crying and the heartache that we go through in this life is designed, and God says so, much tribulation, much sorrow, much difficulty enter the kingdom of God. Because that's what it takes to get us to turn to God. That's what it takes to get us to look to God. Because when things are happy, happy, we tend to forget God. It's always been that way. Now, I like it to be happy, happy, but I don't want to forget God either. So then I have to have sorrow to remind me I need to go to God. That's the way it is with all of us. But there will come a time when our nature is changed. We'll no longer have lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, and envy. Can you imagine a world without any of those emotions? Selfishness? Gone. doesn't even occur to you. Your every thought is upward, not downward we have upward thoughts, we have to fight to get them there, don't we? We have to pray. We have to discipline our minds. Because human nature is a downer. That's why the world's like it is. And you have to rise above it. And it takes God to help you do it. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. We're going to have a whole new world order. Everything's going to be different than it has been. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Write that down, John. Don't miss that. Get that written. It's true and it's faithful. It will happen. He said to me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, 
the beginning and the end. So let it be written, so let it be done. God can say that, and it will happen. It's a done deal. It will happen. The only question is, will you and I be there? Will our names remain in the book of life? Because they're there now. If we overcome, they'll stay there. I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcomes shall inherit all things. Brings it up again here at the very end. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and adulterers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, what do we need to overcome? We need to overcome being fearful and unbelieving and live by faith. That's what we read in Ephesians. Anything that's abominable, we need to overcome. Anything that is ungodly. Murderers, whether it be character assassination or literal murder. And whoremongers, chasing after illicit sex. And sorcerers, the occult, demonism, Protestantism. And idolaters, anything that comes between us and God. That can be herbs or drugs. It can be alcohol or food. It can be the opposite sex. God made all those things to be used His way. Alcohol is wonderful used in balance and properly. Sex is wonderful used in marriage properly. Food is wonderful used in the proper amounts and the right food that makes your body work and work well. Those are all good things, but if abused, they become sin and they must be overcome and changed. There came to me one of the seven angels who had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, <coughs> the lamb's wife. <coughs> Just as the seven last plagues are ready to be poured out on the earth, it will be obvious who is the bride of Christ. She will have been resurrected. She'll be going on her honeymoon with her husband-to-be for a year to come back after the seven last plagues and set up the kingdom of God on the earth. What a beautiful story. So I'll show you the wife. And he showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of God from heaven, having the glory of God. We don't have the glory of God now. We don't even have a tiny little halo, do we? The glory of God. Our faces shining like the sun. And the light was like to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And then he goes on down and describes a physical city, and we are the spiritual counterpart of that. Saw no temple there in verse 22. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God light, did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. The nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And so on. 
He showed me, chapter 22, a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and the Lamb, and twelve trees bearing fruit for the healing of the nations. goes on and on to see the beauty and the loveliness and the peace and the happiness that will be there. <coughs> Verse 5, <coughs> There shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. 5.10 says we'll reign on the earth. Here it says we'll reign with God in His temple forever and ever. We love beautiful rivers, don't we? Aren't you inspired when you go to a river and hear the water flowing over the rocks? That's one of the most peaceful, inspiring things there is. He's going to have tremendous rivers coming out from His throne. And we'll live within the hearing and the sight of those rivers of God. And they'll have beautiful trees producing fruit all along them. What a beautiful setting. How could it be better than that? Some of you are scared of the dark. There won't be any darkness. God's going to light the whole thing up. Just the light of His face and our faces is what it will take. You won't need a flashlight. Just turn your head. Plenty of light. Go anywhere in the universe you want to go. Incredible. It's promised to you and me. And he said to me, these, saying, these sayings are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent His angel to show to His servants the things which must shortly be done. We're at the time now when 2,000 years has passed since then, and it's time for these things to begin to happen. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. It starts out by telling us who is in charge and then it tells us our problems, our weaknesses, and our strengths. And then it tells us, overcome the weaknesses, put on the whole armor of God, and I will give you all these things. Here we are, facing this right now. We're having Satan the devil show us a new world order, which some people say, hey, that might not be so bad after all. Maybe we could have peace and people quit fighting with one another. And they don't understand that what the conspirators are doing is going to bring hell on earth over the next few years. And then after that comes the kingdom of God in which we will be the elite. The elite of the elite. The ones right with the Father and the Son at His throne. Ruling the entire world and the universe forevermore. Now, can you figure out what to do when there's a little lull in the action? 